The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Please stand for a reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 45. On the next day, when they'd come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Tad, and welcome to all of you and those on the live stream. I'm Brian Salter, one of the pastors here, and it's good to be back. I just returned from Israel with a trip with my oldest son and look forward to sharing about that somehow, some way in days ahead because it was really remarkable to be in the land where so much of what we are studying in Luke was occurring, uh, to be on the Sea of Galilee and travel all around uh, made this book come really alive. And so I look forward to preaching this morning and uh, I'm going to pray that God would speak to us in his word. So let, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, that we have it, that we hold it, that it's in our language, that we hear it. All these things we probably take for granted sometimes. We're blessed to be underneath your word, and we're asking for the blessing of the Holy Spirit to come and attend to your word so that we're changed, so our faith increases, so our repentance deepens, so that our lives are transformed for your honor. Come do this, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week we studied about the transfiguration and we studied about the saying that Jesus, when he said, you are the Christ. The Transfiguration is the last painting known as the Transfiguration by the Italian High Renaissance master Raphael. Uh, 
he worked on it in the years preceding his death in 1520, and it hangs in the Vatican gallery, and many consider it to be his greatest work, the Transfiguration. It's really pertinent to this passage because the painting has three levels. On the top level, the uppermost is the transfigured form of Jesus with Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, on both sides of him. And at the beginning of the top of the frame of that painting, you see the glory. On the second level, there are three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they're shielding their eyes from the blinding brilliance of the glory of the transfigured Christ. But then on the third level is the ground level, where a poor demon-possessed boy looks up to the mountain, and a father who's grieving stands in agony. And several of the disciples are pointing to Jesus. It's a remarkable work. And it is pertinent to our text this morning as our text takes us to the ground level. The third level. Raphael's earthly scene placed below the grandeur of the transfiguration He placed Jesus not in glory on the mountaintop, but coming to touch real needs of real people, need of healing, of pain and sin and sickness in a broken world. From the height of the mountaintop glory, Jesus returns with his disciples to the real world of spiritual oppression. Why? Because that's where he intends for you and I to live for now. He doesn't intend for you and I to live on the mountaintop at this moment. But he's placed us on the ground level of a sin-sick, dark, oppressed world to carry out his purpose with his power. That's the reality of life as a disciple. But truth be told, you and I would rather stay on the mountaintop. We have a little bit in common with the disciples. Let's just set up shop and stay here with the glory. Or even worse, we try to live on the ground level, relying on our own strength. And we're going to see that in this text this morning, that in the upside down kingdom of God, Jesus' followers must hold together his matchless power and his authority along with his purposeful suffering and rejection. You see, what we must hold together is mountaintop glory and ground-level need. First, followers of Jesus must hold together his matchless power and authority. You see a father's desperate request. Look at verse 37. On the next day, When they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, a very, very large crowd. And yet watch what Luke does. He goes and zooms in, as it were, with the camera, and he says, and behold. He goes from the crowd and zooms in on behold a man. 
a father, most appropriate on Father's Day, a desperate father. He zooms in on this one man out of the entire crowd, and this father is crying out. And you can imagine as Luke zooms in there that this father would have had a a heart-wrenching look on his face as he cries out to Jesus to turn his gaze upon his only son. It's such interesting language in the text when he says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. The word there is my only son, where you hear Jesus referred to as my only son. The father comes to the father's only son with his only son. Don't let that be lost on you. And he's desperate and he knows that there's something about this man. And Jesus has encountered three. This is the third of only children he's encountered. You remember at the city gates of Nain, the only son of the widow was dead. You remember Jairus, my only daughter, my only child. She's 12. She's dead. And Jesus brought them to life. And now he faces another desperate father with an only son who's possessed and overcome by evil spirits. But look at the second behold in verse 39. The father says, and behold. Luke directs your attention to the father's gaze. The father then directs your attention to the boy. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. Shatters him. And will hardly leave him. From the agonizing face and cry of a father, you go to the desperate condition of his boy. He is seized. He is screaming. The spirit is throwing him to the ground, bruising him and shattering him and will not leave him alone. Relentlessly seizing and binding his beloved boy. Mark adds that the boy grinds his teeth. The gnashing of teeth associated with the reign of evil. Mark says he becomes as rigid as a board and the seizures have rendered his precious only son deaf and mute. He cannot speak. He cannot hear. He is thrown to the ground and bruised. And Matthew says that the boy is cast into fire or water by the Spirit. Can you see him? The father says, behold, do you see the boy? Bruised and battered would have scars from burnings of the Spirit throwing him into the fire, near tales of drowning, and it is regular and ongoing and will not go away, it says. He will hardly leave him. That's what they encounter fresh off the mountain. Real need. Real need. 
real sin, real sickness, real evil. That's ground level life. That Jesus says, my disciples, we will live here on the ground, facing the darkness, facing the oppression, facing a sin-sick world. And then verse 40, you are asked to look at another group. You've looked at the father's face, heard his cry. You've looked at the boy bound. And now look at verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. It's almost like the camera goes away from the boy and just zeroes in on this band of goofballs and they're like that's kind of what Luke wants you to see the father's like I've been begging these guys and nothing's happening Luke turns you to emphasize his emphasis is on the impotent and failed faith of the disciples You see, Mark emphasizes the faith of the father who says, I believe, help my unbelief. Luke's emphasis is on the failed faith of the disciples so that the father says, I've been asking these guys, they got nothing. And you're going to see that Jesus fresh off the mountain has more in common in this text with Moses than maybe you first realize. And there's a lot of Moses themes here. But consider just for a second The context of this moment where the disciples are standing there as failures. This is the final public act in the section of Luke from Luke 4 to Luke 9. It started in Luke 4.33. This is the last of 13 miracles that we've walked through. The first miracle in Luke 4.33 was an evil, unclean spirit, and Jesus set one free from it. Now the last miracle is a demon-possessed boy, and the meaning of Luke is there's a new king who will crush the kingdom of darkness from the beginning of the 13 miracles to the end. And now in this section, he is healing and liberating a demon-possessed boy. Now consider, throughout this section, you have seen Jesus' power, Jesus' authority over nature, over sin, over sickness, over death. And the disciples have had a front row seat. Even in verse 1 of this chapter, chapter 9, consider that verse. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons... And to cure diseases, he gave them the right and the ability, the authority and the power. And verse 10 of chapter 9 seems to indicate some measure of success. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Because verse 6 of 9 says they were preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So, So this band of guys have had... Ministry success, as it were. They've seen the power of God work through them to set people free. And yet the camera turns on them here and they look helpless and dumb. They're like us. Be encouraged this morning. If your Christian life is marked by one step forward and two steps back, you're at home. That's the story of these guys. You remember just after having ministry success, they went to the feeding of the 5,000 and and they didn't even notice that Jesus might be their solution. (laughs) They just said, let's send them away. 
They did not live in the power that God sent them out of, and he was standing right before them, and here they are again. I begged your disciples, but they could not, and so what you have is a bunch just like us. And why did they fail here? Mark says that they asked Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus said, this kind comes out only by prayer. You see their failed faith? They're not living reliant in reliance and dependence on the power that's been given them. And before we go to Jesus' rebuke about that very thing, I want to give you two applications. As I said earlier, we're just like them, one step forward, three steps back in our Christian life. Welcome to discipleship. But also understand that our chief failure as we seek to grow is the failure of these disciples. It is a failure of faith and a failure of dependence. At the heart of our struggle as disciples, it is because we are full of unbelief and because we are full of self-reliance. That's at the heart of our three steps back. And we need to see that so we can repent of that and find a new way. And we need to do what the voice said on the Mount of Transfiguration when it said, listen to him. Our three steps back are because we've stopped listening to him. And doing it his way. But here's a second application. This is one that's really pertinent for our day. Notice the father's faith. The father does not allow the failure of Jesus' disciples to keep him away from Jesus. He goes to Jesus. Please do not allow the failures of the church of Jesus Christ to keep you away from Jesus. Go to him. The father does not allow the followers to be the final descriptor of the one followed. Now, as we go to the rebuke, Jesus' sharp rebuke of unbelieving disciples, listen to what he says. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And you think, Wow. Some serious words. I believe the words are really directed at the disciples. Oh, faithless, twisted generation. And you may say, what's the significance of those words? Maybe I've heard those words before somewhere in the Bible. Deuteronomy 32, the song of Moses. Before Moses hands off to Joshua, he says these words in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 32. They have dealt corruptly with him, they the people with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And then in verse 20, he says, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. Now connect the story that Moses is retelling in his song and connect it to this scene in Luke 9 with Jesus. Moses comes off the mountain of glory at Sinai. And what does he encounter? The people worshiping a false god. 
And he says to them, oh, what a faithless, twisted generation. Jesus comes off the Mount of Glory, and he encounters disciples standing there powerless. And he says, this is my calling as the better Moses, to address the unbelief in the face of glory. And so he rebukes. To be a crooked generation means that you would stray from walking the right path. So what is the essence of the rebuke when Jesus calls the disciples faithless and twisted? It is this, they are trusting in their selves and they are presuming upon their gifts rather than living out of reliance and trusting God's grace. That's the rebuke. Maybe they just presumed. He gave us power in 9-1. Let's just say a few words and voila. That's presumption on the gifts, not trust in the giver. He said this one comes only out by prayer. They're not living in reliance on the power given to them, and they're not living out of faith in the one who has all power and authority. That's the rebuke. They have tried and they have failed to remove the evil spirit. They went the crooked, crooked and twisted way. And what is that way? Listen to me. It's not the mark of a million scandalous sins. Listen to what the crooked and twisted way is. Self-reliance and unbelief. That's the rebuke of the crooked and twisted way. Now consider us. A verse that always strikes me as so rich and full, but so hard to live out and believe is in 2 Peter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So why the, the steps back in my life, why the, the choices of ungodliness? Might it be the same rebuke here? Failure to rely on the power that has been given you from above. That's the nature of the abuke. The heart of the disciples' failure is ours, forgetting radical dependence on God's power, relying on our gifts rather than the giver. And Jesus says, there's a rebuke for that, and we should do what the Mount of Transfiguration instructed us. We should listen to him in that rebuke this morning. You then are confronted with Jesus' healing power as he says, bring your son here. You may remember this has just happened earlier when he said, bring the loaves and fishes to me. <laughs> bring your, it's like, guys, bring it to me. That's your power. You can't do this without me. Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. I imagine healing the boy meant he, he could 
speak again. He could hear again. He was free. He was set free. The one that he said, it hardly leaves him. It's gone. Because it met its match in the King of Kings, Jesus. I want to point out to you something that struck me yesterday. Remember when the father said that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him? Do you know where else that exact word is used? Paul uses it. In Romans 16, 20, that the God of peace will soon crush, shatter Satan under your feet. Our feet? Yes. The shattering of Satan begins here with the power of Jesus. The one shattered by evil. Jesus comes and begins to shatter and crush evil's reign. And Paul says he wants to do that now and will do that under our feet. He sent us to ground level to live by faith in his power and his authority to see him do things that none of us would have imagined left to ourselves. That's the mission. That's the call. He is worthy of our trust. But then he turns in verse 43. All were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were marveling at everything he was doing, he says something. But first, consider the marveling response before we consider the purposeful suffering and rejection. I told you this was the last of 13 miracles in a large section. Look how the very beginning of this section begins in Luke 4:32. The crowd was what? Astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. How does the section end? It ends in verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. They're beginning to have it turn on. This is God at work in the person Jesus. The section is bracketed from astonishment to astonishment. And I believe Luke is saying something to us with that. And he's saying this. Our lives should begin and should end in worship and wonder of Jesus. Our days should begin and should end in astonishment at Jesus. It is the alpha and omega of our life. Worship and wonder of Jesus. And therein is power. And that power is given to us to carry out a purpose that baffles us. A purpose of life through death. Resurrection through a cross. Glory through suffering, which he speaks of. He says, let these words sink into your ears. I find it interesting that he's saying that after he's just healed a boy who couldn't hear. And now do you know who can't hear? The disciples. When he says this, it says they can't can't deal with it. They can't hear. But he's asking us, let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus makes very clear that the present moment 
where he has freed this boy is not just another exercise of power, but is a clear revelation of his purpose from the mountaintop glory to the ground level of need and pain. Jesus will minister in the darkness. He will not remain isolated on the mountain. That's what Jesus is all about. And to minister in the darkness, like Moses, Jesus himself went through a mountaintop experience knowing that it was preparing him to follow where the law and the prophets had pointed. It was preparing him to follow down into the valley of despair and death where demons shriek and where people suffer and where people weep. That's where the Son of Man says he will go and he will be handed over for sinners. He will be betrayed. He will face rejection. Going down the mountain of glory, Jesus at ground level says, I'm going to a different mountain. Calvary. Mount Moriah. Where death on a cross will await him and he will enact an even greater exodus than Moses. Not out of slavery of Egypt, but out of sin and death, bringing us home to our promised inheritance. Just see this story. Jesus comes off the Mount of Transfiguration to meet us in our sin-sick ruin and goes to the mountain of Calvary that one day he might place us in Mount Zion, redeemed forever. That's why Jesus came. Not isolation in the comfort of the Mount of Transfiguration, but transformation of our world unto the glory seen on the mountain. And verse 45 says, they didn't understand this. It was concealed from them, they, so they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this, saying, I think the people that are hiding it from the disciples are themselves. I don't think they want to believe this. I don't think they want to believe for a minute that the way the kingdom comes at ground level is through dying. I don't think they want to believe for a minute that the way the kingdom comes at ground level is through suffering, is through the cross. And Jesus will make it plain to them and to us over and over and over. Do you see where God has us today? We're in a ground level fight against sin and evil. That's where we are. But we're not powerless. And we're headed to a better mountain because he went to the Mount of Calvary. I close with this story of the Oscar-winning movie, Chariots of Fire, uh, maybe a different perspective on things you've heard about that, but that movie tells the tale of athletes at the, two athletes at the 1920 Paris Olympics, Harold Abrahams, and after a gigantic struggle as much against himself, he achieves the gold medal in the 100 yards, and Eric Little, the devout Christian, refused to run on Sunday and switched events and won the gold in the 440. But the moment of the movie that really shows this 
this hesitancy in us, this disturbance to leave the comfort of the mountain and to settle back into ground level home is as all the athletes return to London, they spill out excitedly into the Waterloo station, but not Harold Abrahams. His girlfriend waits anxiously as the crowd thins out. And only when everybody's gone does Harold emerge slowly from the train. Why? He's achieved all he set out to do. He's got the long coveted prize in his hand. It was the thing he thought he had to have. And now he's got to come down from the giddy heights and face a life of reality. Coming back down from the mountain to reality is a severe struggle. And with that story and with this text in mind, I'd like to charge us to this end. Let's not get stuck in the giddy heights of past achievements, of past accomplishments, for Christ, of past encounters with God. But instead, let us commit anew to live by faith and face the reality of the ground level of the kingdom in a broken, sin-sick, sorrowful, desperate world. And to accept the reality that we have been given the power to carry out the purpose of the king of all kings. May we hear the rebuke. May we trust the power. May we bring the purpose of Christ to the ground level of our lives. Let's pray. We have the power, Lord. Your word tells us in Christ You've given us everything we need. Our problem is not a lack. Our problem is unbelief, self-reliance. Running to the comfort of a mountain and lush hopes. Running away from the sorrows of this world instead of running to them with power to bring your purpose. Would you help us? Would you change us? Would you help us see your grace? That you, even as you rebuke the disciples, you bear with them. You bear with them. You love them. You go to the cross for them. You meet them as resurrected. And you restore them. We thank you for that and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.